All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is a unique text in that it addresses what feels like an issue that was more an ancient issue than a modern one, and yet the implications of this text have powerful modern relevance as well. The issue he addresses in this text is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and now in Christ, what God has done about that relationship, and thus how Jews and Gentiles ought to relate together as one people in Christ. It is very important that as we enter into chapter 2, 11 through 22, we see the logical connection here with the preceding paragraph that we talked about in our last session. The preceding paragraph talks about uh, how God solved our relationship with him, like our sin issue. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were cut off from the life of God. We were uh, uh, outside of Christ, and God solved that by his grace, and he made us alive. That's 2, 1 through 10. Notice that 11 through 22 begins with the word therefore in verse 11. Therefore, which means in some logical sense, Paul sees a connection between this discussion about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and that discussion about how God saved us from our sin problem in 2, 1 through 10. They are logically connected in his mind. And the reason for that is that in Paul's understanding, the reconciliation of humanity in Christ finds its basis in the salvation work of God in Christ. That the way we are saved, that all of us were um, outside of Christ, were destined for wrath, we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, we all had the same destiny because we all had the same sin problem. And it is the fact that God solved that problem, not through the Torah, not through the law, but in Christ that now has opened the way for all mankind to come in. And thus it means there is peace among humanity as well as peace with God. And so don't miss the therefore at the beginning of this text. It's terribly important. Also notice that this reconciliation of humanity is uh, really achieved in Christ and by the saving work of Jesus. And so even though he's talking about here in verses 11 to 22, the relationship between human beings, it still is founded upon the work of Jesus on the cross. And that's borne out in the details of the text where you have a huge emphasis on Christ. Like this happens in Christ Jesus. It's by the blood of Christ. It's he himself is our peace. It's in his flesh. He, he might make in himself one new man. He might reconcile. It's through the cross. He preached uh, peace. This is through him. Everything in this passage that is about the reconciliation of human beings is the result of Christ's work and the result of being in Christ. And that's terribly important as well. And that really emphasizes the connection between paragraph one in chapter two and this paragraph, that this is achieved by the grace of God in Christ. All right. Now, this text has three main parts. Uh, verses 11 and 12 focuses on the old status and really focuses on the plight of the Gentiles. Your old status, O Gentiles, was you were apart from Christ. You had no hope. You were godless. You were you were on a, in a desperate situation. Um, then verses 13 through 18, part two, focuses on what God did 
bit about that, how he made peace. And so huge emphasis on verses uh, 13 through 18 about peace. And then verses 19 through 22 then says, based on what God did, here's your new status. You are now part of God's people. You're part of God's family. And therefore, you're also the very dwelling place of God on earth. So 11 through 12, 13 through 18, 19 through 22. That's how this text really breaks down. And over and over and over again, what Paul says in this text is God made peace. God made peace. It doesn't just mean he made you feel peace in your heart. And it doesn't even just mean he made peace with you and himself, like the vertical relationship. That's 2, 1 through 10. Primarily when he says God made peace, he means God made peace between people. Whether you feel like it or not, God made peace between people. And so, as he'll say later in Ephesians, now you need to learn that out. God did this. So you figure out how to live out by the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of God. You live this out. So when he says God made peace, it's primarily about peace between human beings in this text. With that, then, let's jump into the details of the text. Verse, verses 11 and 12 is the old status of the, the Gentiles. It's the plight of the Gentiles. And it sets the stage for really the rest of the text and what Paul wants to talk about, that there was a massive rift that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, and there are, this division had two aspects that are expressed here in verses 11 and 12. It starts with the kind of the observable ceremonial difference, and that observable ceremonial difference is circumcision. Listen to what he says. Therefore, we noted that, that's really important, Based on what God did in Christ and how he made us alive, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. So what was implicit in chapter 2, 1 through 3, you Gentiles, we Jews, is now explicit. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And so that's the observable ceremonial difference, circumcision. It is the mark, uh, really, that distinguished in the Jewish mind between the Jews as God's people and the Gentiles as those without God, outside of God. So circumcision was this observable physical mark. It is the crucial observable difference that separated Jew and Gentile. And the Jews just classified in all humanities as that. There's the uncircumcision, i.e. the Gentiles, and there's the circumcision, the Jews. That's who humanity was as far from a Jewish perspective. Paul emphasizes here, however, notice that it was just outward. It was merely in the flesh. It wasn't something that necessarily changed anybody's nature. It didn't change anybody's heart. It was purely done in the flesh. So he's referred to the Gentiles in the flesh, merely physical, merely flesh, by old human standards. And uh, this circumcision is performed in the flesh by human hands. It's merely a physical thing. And Paul's wanting to emphasize that, that this is merely a physical distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Circumcision really possessed meaning only because of the theological division, which Paul then sums up in verse 12, which is really the essential spiritual difference between Jews and Gentiles. So you have the observable ceremonial difference, circumcision, but then you have the essential difference, and that's more spiritual. And that's what Paul sums up then in verse 12. So he says this in verse 12, remember that you were at that time 
when you were outside of Christ, you were separate from Christ. You were literally without Christ. And then he goes on to explain what being without Christ means. So that is the, the fundamental spiritual difference between um, Gentiles and Jews. And once you both come into Christ, all that's changed. So you were without Christ. You were apart from him. Probably in the sense of, um, obviously, historically, you didn't have any hope in Christ. You didn't have the promise of Christ. And then experientially, prior to coming into Christ, you literally were outside of Christ. Even though he had come, you didn't know him and you hadn't experienced the benefits he had to offer. So you were separate from Christ, outside of Christ. What does that mean? What are some of the implications of that in relationship to the Jews? Well, that's what Paul then describes in the second half of verse 12. What does that mean to be without Christ? Well, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That doesn't just mean that Gentiles were outside of the nation of Israel. Gentiles actually lived uh, within the boundaries of physical Israel. They lived in the, on the land of Israel, right? So it wasn't so much the physical or national boundaries Paul has in mind as the spiritual boundaries. You were outside of the commonwealth of Israel means you were estranged from God's covenant people, God's, the commonwealth, the citizenship in, like the way of life that went with it. You were uh, really outside of the whole commonwealth of God's people. In fact, the word commonwealth sometimes just referred to a way of life, not even a, a group, but a way of life. And so you were outside of that. You didn't know about the people of God. You were apart from the way of life that went with the people of God. Not only that, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Like it was to Israel and not to the Gentiles that the, the the God's covenants were given. It was to Israel and not the Gentiles that all the messianic promises had been given. Um, God's messianic plan of salvation was to come through the Jews, through Israel. And you were outside of that. Uh, out of all of the nations of the world, only one, Israel, was chosen to be the recipients of God's covenant prior to the arrival of Christ. And so as Gentiles, you were, you were on the outside of all of that, what God was doing leading up to the moment that Messiah should come. And then the third result of being without Christ or separate from Christ is to be hopeless and godless in the world. Like you were hopeless. You were without hope and without God in the world, as he says there at the end of verse 12. And so uh, being hopeless is just really a good way to describe sort of the pagan experience. Pagan religions only led to despair, not really hope. Gentiles at that time had no bright prospects of the future, no assurance of life beyond the grave. That Some of them had some sh shadowy, kind of vague, maybe understanding of the possibility of some life after death, but most of it was not very positive, certainly not very concrete or clear. Um, many of the the uh, Gentile people had a cyclical view of history, which gave no purpose. Life just kind of kept going on, repeating itself. Um, and even though they didn't know it from the Jews' perspective, all they had to look forward to was the condemnation and wrath of God. And so there was no hope for the Gentiles outside of Christ, and they were godless. They had tons of gods, right? Pagan religions had tons of gods. So in what sense were they godless? Well, and then the word godless literally is uh, atheoi, from the word we get our word atheist from. They were like atheists, but they had tons of gods. And Gentiles actually considered Jews oftentimes atheists because they only worshipped one true God. They didn't believe in all the other gods. But from the Jewish perspective and in truth, they were the ones that were godless, meaning 
they didn't know the true God. They didn't know the living God. They didn't know the one true creator God who made them and everything else, so they had no true knowledge of God. This was the predicament the Gentiles were in prior to the coming of Christ um, and prior to them entering into Christ. So that's the predicament. That's the old status. Now, verses 13 through 18 says, what did God do about that? How did God address that? Well, this is how he addressed it. Verse 13, but now, notice the shift in time, but now in Christ, there's been a, a change that has now taken place, uh, both in kind of in capacity, but also in actuality, in experience for the Ephesians and all the original readers and us who are in Christ, who are Gentiles. But now something's changed in the state of being in history and in our experience. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So you who were far off from the people of God, who were outside all that God was doing, who were missing out on all of God's promises, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for, explaining what he means by being brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now, oftentimes I've heard that that phrase, he is our peace, about how he brings so much peace to my life. I have so much more peace in my heart since Jesus came into my life. And that's true. That is a legitimate experience, right? The peace that passes all understanding. It's just that that's not what he's focusing on here in verse 14. So Jesus is our peace in this sense in verse 14. Notice the rest of the verse. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. All right, there's a lot in there that we've got to, we've got to unpack. All right, so let's unpack that. But before we look at the details, just notice that Jesus is our peace in the sense that he is peace between people. Peace uh, between not not just between us and God, or not even within our own heart, He is peace in this sense that He has made both groups into one. Paul says so. He is our peace in the sense He has brought peace between uh, really competing human groups. In this case, the the division between Jew and Gentile, right? That that massive uh, kind of division in humanity between those two groups there was so much hostility and so much hatred and so much animosity Jesus made peace is what Paul's saying so he is our peace who made both groups into one circumcision uncircumcision brought together into one um, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall uh, let's talk about that phrase a little bit the barrier of the dividing wall which is really the combination of a couple of words. So Jesus tore down the barrier of the dividing wall. The dividing wall, this particular word, refers to just a partition or a dividing wall, just like a wall inside of a house, all right? So it's just a wall between rooms and a house. It just divides them. And so humanity was divided because of the old covenant. There was the Jews and there was everybody else. And if you wanted to get in on what God was doing, you had to come in and live among the Jews. So they were divided in that sense. And then barrier, that's another word, phragmas in Greek, which refers to a fence or a wall of some sort, usually to keep something out, to protect something. And so I think of like in their context, a wall around a vineyard. 
um, right? Or if you plant a garden in your yard and you live in an area where an wild animals can get into it, deer or something like that, you put a fence around it to protect your garden. If you have dogs in the backyard, you put a fence around your garden to keep them out of it. So that's frog moss. It's a barrier to keep uh, other things out, usually to protect something. And so Paul thus compares the social and religious differences between Jew and Gentile to a dividing wall that was intentionally set up to keep each other separate as a way to protect God's people. In fact, one research did uh, all this research on kind of Jews in the ancient world, and not once did any uh, ancient author point out how the Jews looked different or how their clothes were different or any um, anything like that. The only really tangible, observable difference between the Jews and the rest of mankind in the ancient world was the Jewish rites and rituals and laws. It was their laws that really set up this dividing wall, this barrier. Well, guess what Paul says next? Very much in keeping with that, verse 15, he says, how did he break down the barrier of the dividing wall? Well, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, Enmity just means hostility. So he got rid of the hostility between these groups, this tension and animosity that kept them apart. And what specifically is that? It's the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And so he tore down the barrier of the dividing wall, i.e. that is he removed the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Um, the idea of tore down or in some translations, abolished, um, when he says, by abolishing in his flesh, well, that word is to nullify, to you know, put void through something. So it means to render it an operative. And so the idea seems to be here that um, Jesus, by virtue of fulfilling the law and bringing the law to its intended culmination point, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, where Christ is the end of the law for all who believe means that he has brought it to its culmination point. And so when Christ brought the law to its climax and its culmination point, the dividing wall between mankind was torn down. It crumbled. And what was the ultimate goal of that? Well, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And so the Old Testament law, with all the specific rites and rituals that kept the Jews and Gentiles apart, Christ tore that down so that, which so that indicates purpose or result, so, so that in himself, in Jesus, he might make the two, i.e., the, the Jews and Gentiles, the two groups, the two divisions, into one new man, one new humanity. There is, in Christ, one humanity. So it doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter racial background. doesn't matter your ethical background. doesn't matter your social background. When you come into Christ, there's one humanity, one humanity in Christ. Jesus made that possible. So he he might make the two groups, in this case, Gentile and Jew, into one new humanity, one new human family, thus establishing peace. So peace has been fought for and accomplished by Jesus in himself. And so he made one new humanity, thus establishing peace, and, verse 16, and then might reconcile them both in one body, 
to God through the cross. And so he tore down the barrier of the dividing wall, establishing one new human family. And he's going to take that one new human family and they're going to not only be in a right relationship with each other, they're also going to be reconciled to God in one body. So it's not like you have a Jewish group that's reconciled to God and a Gentile group that's reconciled to God. No, you have one body, one human family that together now are in a right relationship with God. How did he do that? Well, he did that through the cross, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Oh, I love that play on words that the cross is this violent, uh, death-wielding instrument of torture that the Romans devised as a, a form of like state-sponsored terrorism, basically to try to keep, uh, you know, the the populace in check. Well, by this violent, death-wielding instrument, God, through Christ, um, put to death. Notice the play on words, put to death the enmity. When Jesus died on the cross, the enmity between mankind died with him. The enmity between mankind and mankind and the enmity between mankind and God was put to death as well. And so, verse 17 says, and so he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. That line there is an echo of Isaiah 57, verse 19, um, where those who are far off are Gentiles and those who are near are Jews, and God's going to make peace between them. In fact, one scholar contends that the phrases far off and near were actually used uh, by rabbis of the day to refer to Gentiles and Jews based on the Old Testament background of that. And so, God in Christ has actually made peace between all mankind, Gentiles and Jews, the two major groups of humanity. He came and he proclaimed, declared peace, peace to you who are far away, Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, i.e. Jews, and brought you together for, verse 18, for through him, through him, we both, we Jews, we Gentiles, in other words, all humanity, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What a beautiful picture this idea of access is. It's only used three times in the New Testament, here in this verse, later in Ephesians in chapter 3 verse 12, and then in Romans chapter 5 verse 2. All of them uh, have to describe the Christian's ongoing relationship with God, where the Christian now has uh, an open door policy with God himself. They have access to God. They have unexpected welcome uh, with God. They have confident freedom to enter into God's presence. Notice that here in Ephesians chapter 2, in keeping with the point he's making, both groups, Jews have access to God through Jesus. Gentiles who were formerly far off and outside of all that, they too have access. They have this, this relationship of welcome with God, of confident access, this open door policy. So both groups have that. They have access. Notice he says, in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, by one spirit, in one spirit. The spirit is consistently in Paul's writings uh, a creator of, as well as evidence of, unity. And so the spirit who lives in the Jews is the very same spirit who lives in the Gentiles. And by that one spirit now, they have access to God the Father. 
just pay attention to this verse and you notice what you have. You have uh, through him, Jesus, in one spirit, the Father, all three members of the Godhead at work and uniting humanity together as one new family in peaceful relationship with each other and peaceful relationship with God. Well, what's the outcome of that? What's the, the result of that? Well, verses 19 through 22 then say, okay, so here's the result. Here's the new status. Here's now what's true. Because God did this, because God made peace in Christ between mankind and people as well as in their relationship with each other, what's the outcome? Well, the outcome is this, new status. Verse 19 says, so then. Two words really for therefore, like therefore, therefore, therefore then. Trying to emphasize, look at the conclusion. This is the logical outcome of what God did in Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You Gentiles, you who were on the outside looking in, you who were separate from Christ, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Those two words speak really of like foreigners. Uh, when he says strangers and aliens, it's like foreign residents, resident aliens, right? Like you don't have full rights of citizenship. So when he talks about you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, your status has been changed. And so you're not just a, a uh, you know, resident foreigner living there without all the rights and privileges, right? You're not um, a outsider. You are a fellow citizen with the saints. The saints means God's people, God's holy people, past, present, and future. You're actually a full citizen with them. Then he goes on, he says, and you are of God's household. So household is the idea of family. You're part of God's household, part of God's family, that you've been welcomed at the family table. That's the imagery here. So you are now um, citizens, and not only just citizens and kind of a that cold, which can feel more cold, your family members. They are not mere servants, right? Not mere slaves, not mere household servants. They are sons and daughters and are welcomed at the family table. They, they have all the rights and privilege uh, uh, of sons and daughters, children in the family. They are full-fledged members of the families. You, Gentiles, outsiders who used to be far off, you are now full-fledged family members among the people of God. Well, that word household then um, really spurs in his mind the idea of just a house. And so Paul changes the imagery again in verse 20 and says, um, you have been built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so now he begins to think in terms of a house. You're like a building. You're a house um, in which God's going to dwell and Again, that's spurred on by the word household, which means family, but it's from the same root word as building that shows up later on in this, this passage. And so the, the change of imagery feels stark and kind of shocking to us, but it's not for him because of the, the, uh, the root word there for building in verse 21 is the same root word for the word household in verse 19. So you have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and so... We need to think about who the apostles and prophets are. 
the apostles is pretty obvious, right? We know who the apostles are, Peter, James, John, Paul, the apostles. But who are the prophets? Well, it could be Old Testament prophets, like the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Just thinking maybe in terms of the scriptures, uh, I think theologically I could get around that. It just doesn't seem to make sense in the idea of this new family being built upon the apostles and Old Testament prophets. Well, when you read into chapter 3, it becomes really clear that the apostles and prophets, as Paul's using it here, is New Testament prophets. In fact, even in chapter 4, verse 11, when he talks about the prophets, he seems to be talking about New Testament prophets there. And so we're, we seem to be talking about uh, apostles and New Testament prophets, i.e., that is the teaching, the inspired teaching of uh, God's spokesmen in the church in this new era. And so you have the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets with Christ Jesus, he says in verse 20, being the very cornerstone. There's been some de debate about the idea of what is meant by cornerstone. The word in, in some translations is translated like capstone, and so a different imagery. A capstone was the final stone put in an, in an archway that holds the whole archway together. So it's the stone on top that caps it off and holds the whole archway together. And so some say that's what's being referred to here. Uh, suppose that's possible. That just would mean Paul's mixing his metaphor. Uh, it's probably best just to take it as a cornerstone. Paul's talking about a foundation and Christ being the cornerstone of the foundation. Well, that makes perfect sense of the imagery. The cornerstone is the first stone laid in the foundation that really gets the angles right and sets the trajectory for the foundation, and then the whole foundation is built around that. That makes sense both theologically, and it makes sense in the immediate context of the imagery here. And so I don't think we should understand it as a capstone, as in some translations. I think it's best to understand it as a cornerstone. And so the foundation of God's people in Christ is Christ himself is the cornerstone of that foundation. And then the teaching of the apostles and New Testament prophets is the further foundation built off of Christ himself. And then it says this in verse 21, in whom, in Christ, the whole building, and it's that word building that's from the same oik, oikos word root that household is that led to this shift of metaphors in the latter half of this section. So the whole building being fitted together, being built together, is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. And so this whole building, all these people, Jews and Gentiles together, being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. That's the kind of building that it is. It is the very dwelling place of God. In fact, the word he uses for temple isn't hieron in Greek. It's neos. The word neos really refers to the temple proper, not the whole temple complex, but the temple proper, the actual sanctuary, the place where God dwells uh, is the idea. So now God's temple, God's dwelling place, isn't a building in Jerusalem. It is God's people scattered all around the world that includes people of all different backgrounds. It is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, verse 22, in whom you also, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, you original readers, you who are now reading it today, uh, centuries later, in whom you also are being built together. You're being 
added onto this, this temple. You're being built together, notice, into a dwelling place of God in his spirit, by the spirit. And so God's very own spirit comes to inhabit this new temple. And God's um, the promise of God's new temple, where God himself now once again comes and dwells in that temple, has been fulfilled in Christ and his people. And so this long-awaited promise of a restored temple uh, among whom God would dwell again is now fulfilled in Jews and Gentiles being built together into a holy temple of the Lord, the very dwelling place of God by his Spirit. Notice that the really the new status in verses 19 through 22 reverses everything in the old status in, in verses 11 and 12. So you, you compare 11 and 12 to 19 through 22 Everything that was wrong in 11 and 12 is righted in 19 through 22. Uh, they were separate from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, now they're fellow citizens with the saints. Um, they were strangers to the covenant of promise. Well, they're no longer strangers and aliens. They're actually part of God's very own family. They were hopeless and without God in the world. Well, guess what? Now they're the very dwelling place of God by his spirit. And so everything that was Part of the problem for the Gentiles is now solved in Christ who has come uh, to, to make peace and allow them to be part of God's very own people. And so they have this high status now as being the very dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so as we wrap up this section, um, this passage tells us that the church here is both a uh, de demolition zone and a construction site where the barrier of the dividing wall is torn down and abolished and removed. The things that divided humanity and kept them apart from each other is now removed in Christ. And there's one new humanity. And that one new humanity is brought together in Christ. And there is now peace. Peace. Think about that. And so how do we solve all the divisions in mankind? How do we solve the racial tensions? And how do we solve the uh, social uh, disparities and social tensions and how do we so we we don't solve that by policy ultimately we don't solve that by new government plans we don't solve that by education that's solved in Christ and if in Christ it isn't being solved then we're not following Christ we're not letting Christ rule we're not living out what Christ intended in Christ all mankind is meant to be um dwelling together as one new humanity. And so when people of all these different backgrounds, all these different racial groups, all these different even uh, moral backgrounds, religious backgrounds, when they're all brought together in Christ, one new humanity is formed in him. And the mark of that humanity is meant to be peace. Peace, shalom, harmony. Why? Because we are all experiencing the one Spirit of God who now dwells in us, and we are the very dwelling place of God by His Spirit, through whom His wisdom and His goodness is to be displayed to this world. And so uh, may we as God's people learn to live out the very peace that cost Christ His life and that He worked and fought so valiantly to achieve, the peace between mankind that intends to reflect the goodness and the wisdom and the grace and the beauty and the power of God and what he's done for us in Jesus.